right. Good morning, everybody. Am I on? Okay, there. I can tell I'm on. Good morning, everybody. Well, as you can tell, I'm back from my sabbatical now. And, um, well, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, I mean, I was back at the retreat last week, too, right? So it's not that, uh, that strange. Most of you saw me there. But uh, uh, it was good to, to be away. I, I really um, enjoyed being on sabbatical uh, the last uh, several months in that uh, one thing about being a pastor is that uh, you're, you're, you don't really get to see other churches, and you usually, you know, you're, you know, you're always at your own church. And so I wanted to go visit other churches that um, most of which I had never been to before. And, and I was able to accomplish that. And there's something very refreshing about being in a fellowship that you really, you know, have never really walked through the doors, see other believers worship, you know, together, even if you're not friends with anybody there or whatever. And, and some of them I, I, I were friends with the pastors or people in the church and uh, uh, just to hear other people preach the word of God to you. Um, you know, not that I don't like listening to Nam or anything on a you know, weekly basis, but there's something refreshing about hearing other preaching as well. And so it was, a, it was just a wonderful time to, to be able to do that. It's very refreshing uh, for my soul. I didn't have to teach, you know, during that, uh, that three-month period. And um, I thank you guys for uh, letting me go and uh, for the elders who uh, filled in for me for Ashley and Young for uh, really taking care of the children's and the nursery and all that. And I uh, was really uh, thankful for all you guys for your support, some of you uh, directly so. I really appreciate all, all of your love uh, in my time away. But it's good to be back. It's great to be back. And uh, with that said, this is not part of the message but this is just part of uh, my exhortation before the message. Okay, this is the message before the message, right? You know, one thing that's very apparent as, as I, I'm away and as uh, looking at things and talking to other pastors, uh, people within our own church, is, you know, we, we live in a very divisive time. It, it, it is one of the hardest time, times that we've been in in a long time, this, this COVID period. And uh, look at our world. Is our world unified or disunified? Very, very disunified. And the churches are reflecting that as well. And, uh, you know, we have said this many times from, from the pulpit and in members' assemblies and, uh, you know, in our pastors' live casts when we used to do those. You remember those on Wednesday in that COVID period? But uh, I, I just want to reiterate this so that there's no misunderstanding and that everyone's on the same page we have a variety of opinions. Uh, people are dividing over whether to mask or not to mask, whether to have the vaccine or not to vaccine. Uh, there is shaming of those who are you know, not getting vaccinated and, and all of the stuff that's going on. And that's normal. In the world, we expect to see uh, that kind of behavior. But we don't expect to see it in the church. And so whatever your persuasion is, whatever your conviction is about masks or vaccines or all of that, that's fine for you to have that. But it's not fine for you to, you know, judge other people in the church. It's not fine for you to look down upon other people uh, in the church for their decisions, for their convictions, or to make that a test of fellowship in any way. If, if there is any of that going on within our church, making you know, vaccination or non-vaccination or mask or non-mask uh, a test of fellowship, you know, that's, you, you need to look within your heart and see what's, what's causing all of that. Uh, we need to respect each other. We need to remember that it's Christ that unites us, not a vaccine, not a mask. And uh, we need to respect each other, love each other. We all have different convictions. Hold your convictions, but hold them in humility and don't let that become a hindrance in the fellowship in our body. Are we all on the same page? We all understand? I hope we are, because if, if we're not, we're going to be talking about it with you, because that's, that's something that we cannot tolerate. It's splitting churches, it's hurting people, and, and we, we don't want that. Uh, it's not, when we co- you come into the uh, membership here, that's one of the first things we tell you, right? That we, we, we decry legalism, right? We decry judgmentalism and authoritarianism. And so I just want to reiterate, make sure that we're all on the same page about that. Okay? All right. All right, with that said, now we get to business. Let's open our Bibles to John chapter 12. 
Who even remembers that I preach in the Gospel of John when I preach here, right? And I I really haven't for a while. Uh, I was talking to Jennifer, and Jennifer said that uh, when she first came to this church, I was just starting the Gospel of John. So I said, well, when when did you first come to the church? I said, 2008. So, okay, well, my goal is to finish John before I die. That, uh, you know... Or before she dies, you know, whichever comes first, right? But uh, that, is our, that is the goal. And, uh, you know, I know over the COVID period when I spoke from here, I, I, I spoke to other issues that I felt were a little more pressing at the time. But I, I feel now it's time to get back to the Gospel of John. I'll be preaching next month as well, so we'll pick up here. Uh, but I, I realize that uh, when we do exposition in a book that we pick up from time to time, it, it, it is a little bit awkward like that. But anyways, uh, this morning, uh, we begin to discuss the Passion Week of Christ. Now, the Passion Week refers to the whole narrative of Jesus' arrest, his trial, and his crucifixion. Now, if you're like me, you might wonder, uh, where does that come from, the Passion Week? Right? I always wondered that. Uh, why do we call it his Passion Week. Well, that language is based on the King James translation of Acts 1-3, which refers to Jesus' suffering as his passion. Now, obviously, it is the most significant week in the life of Jesus, and it all begins here in an event that all four Gospels include, an event that's commonly referred to as the triumphal entry. Now, I have to admit, uh, growing up in the church as, as I did, um, I had no idea why this was called the triumphal entry, you know? Um, you know, what was so triumphant about it anyways, right? I, I didn't really get the gist of all that. You know, Jesus rides through town on a donkey. Okay, well, I guess, I, but I don't understand the significance of well, what's so triumphal about it. Well, before we're done today, I I hope to peel back some of the layers that will reveal what was so triumphal about this, okay? So hopefully, if we can accomplish that before you go home today, then I think that's that's what we'd like to do. But anyways, let me read the passage first, and then we will pray and get to business here this morning. John chapter 12, verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had Uh, come to the feast, heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look! The whole world has gone after him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for a chance to open the word this morning and to look at our Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ, who lived the perfect life on our behalf, accomplished redemption, lifted up that perfect life unto you, and as a substitute, sacrifice for us, and gave it up, suffered your wrath, and gave eternal life to those who would trust in him. We thank you and we praise you for him and we pray as we look at him here this morning, we would see different aspects of the triumphal entry and why this is such a significant passage, both now and for the age to come. We give you praise in Jesus' name, amen. All right. Well, we're gonna take a look there first, messianic excitement in uh, verses uh, 12 to 13. Let's look at verse 12 um, here. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. Now, we have entered Sunday of Passion Week, 
Okay, we know what happens on Friday, right? So we're on Sunday of Passion Week. What is traditionally known as Palm Sunday, right? Okay, maybe I should have said Palm, and then maybe it would have been easier. But yeah, what is traditionally known as Palm Sunday. Now, John notes that these events take place the next day. So let's remind ourselves, let's take a moment to remind ourselves where we are in the narrative so that we can go forward and not be confused. Remember, Jesus came to Bethany to see Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And if you remember, this is at the beginning of the chapter in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, they threw a dinner for him to to honor him. And it was at this dinner, if you recall, that Mary demonstrated an incredible act of love and devotion for Jesus. If you remember, She took that very expensive vial of perfume. She broke it open, right? And remember, we're told it was worth a year's wages. So this is not, you know, Walmart perfume, right? Or anything like that. This is the good stuff. And she poured it all out on Jesus to anoint him. If you remember, did people go, yeah, that's so awesome that you, no, they, the, Judas and, the, and his disciples said, oh my gosh, what a waste, right? We might have said that too, if we were there as well, that she, she was uh, harshly criticized, right, uh, for being wasteful, but who cares about their opinion, right? Who commended her instead? Jesus. Jesus commended her for her lavish act of worship. Well, you know, a large number of Jews from Jerusalem heard that both Jesus and Lazarus were there, right? And so think about it. The one who was raised from the dead is doing a joint appearance with the guy who raised him from the dead, right? That's pretty good. I'm going to go see that, right? So they came to see them for themselves. And as a result, we're told here that many, in verse 11... We're professing faith in Jesus. So the immediate solution, right? If you're against Jesus, you're against his movement, right? You know, the the immediate solution that the Sadducees came up with was, let's kill Lazarus, right? Let's kill Lazarus too. Because if you remember, they were already planning to assassinate Jesus. That was already decided. Now with this whole Lazarus business, let's get rid of both of them. And do away with the problem. Well, that was the day before, okay? On this next day, we encounter a different crowd than yesterday's crowd. This here is a large crowd, John says, of pilgrims, probably, you know, many of whom were from Galilee, uh, who had already made their way to Jerusalem. Remember, they're there because they're going to celebrate the Passover. But they had heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. This is a big deal, right? Now, how many people are there? When we talk about large, what do we mean by large? Well, we're probably talking about a pretty significant number. Josephus, I think many of you know who Josephus is. He was that first century Jewish historian. Uh, He describes in his uh, history, uh, his antiquities, he describes one Passover that took place in the 60s, the late 60s, this is not the 1960s, by the way, right? This is the first century. The 60s that had, and according to him, 2,700,000 present in Jerusalem. Now, many historians really doubt that number. They believe his number is inflated. And let's say for a moment that it is exaggerated, that it it is uh, somewhat untrue. Let's say half that number is true. That is still an awful lot of people. Let's say a third of that is true. That's an awful lot of people that are here. And we would expect them to be for for a significant act such as this. But all, all that to say, there were a lot of people present that day and there was an excitement in the air at the prospect that Jesus is coming to town. Jesus is on his way and there is a buzz in the air. Verse 13. So they took branches, they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. 
Now, although this, this imagery uh, may not be too familiar with us Westerners in the 21st century, right? As I read that, this is a scene that would have been familiar to Jesus' audience. Now, by the time that, uh, the, or I should say John's audience, really, because he's the, the writer, but by this time, you have to understand, the waving of palm branches had already become a nationalist symbol. It was a national symbol of celebration, of, of praise, and here's a key, okay, all of these are true, victory over defeated enemies. Meaning, you would see these palm fronds prominently displayed during victory parades of the conquering generals and kings. So, you know, whereas today, you know, we have victory parades, like if the Lakers win a championship and, you know, downtown they're having a victory, you probably don't see palm fronds, right? I, I don't remember ever seeing that. You might see towel waved or, or, or flags or something like that, but you probably wouldn't see palms. There you would, because victory, celebration, and praise were all understood to be intertwined with that symbol. So, what is the big celebration about, and what is the great victory that the Jews are celebrating? It's a good question, right? Well, first things first. It's pretty obvious, right, that they are identifying Jesus as their long-awaited Messiah, who was prophesied about ever since Genesis 3.15. You guys all remember the most seminal passage. You can't go three verses in your Bible until you get a messianic prophecy, right? I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. You remember the key? He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Or, uh, uh, yeah, and you shall bruise his heel. Some had seen the miracles of Jesus for themselves, right? Including this most recent one with Lazarus. Well, others had merely heard about them, but that was enough to believe, for the people to believe, that this was the one to whom the Old Testament pointed to. Now, this is is not a guess here, by the way. This is borne out by what they were continually shouting out to Jesus during this procession. Now, we're going to come back to how victory uh, plays into, you know, th- this, this whole celebration, um, how it, it, has, it has to do with the Messiah uh, and this Palm Sunday in just a second. But let me just give you a little bit of background information that will help you here, okay, to understand this scene. During feasts such as tabernacles, the Feast of Dedication, and here, Passover, the Hallel Psalms, Hallel just means praise, by the way, the Hallel Psalms were sung by the temple choir every morning, which consisted of Psalms 113 to 118. Those were the Hallel Psalms. And what they are shouting out in our passage comes from, guess what? That portion of the Hallel. In fact, at the Feast of Tabernacles, when they got to Psalm 118.25, every single male, not just the men, the boys too, they would pick up their palm leaves, what they call lulabs. They would pick up their palm leaves, and when they heard it sung, at this part, save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. At that point, they would pick up their palm and they would start waving them. They would start waving the palms. That exclamation here of save us, that's the exact same word in our passage, Hosanna. And that had become, by this time, a customary way of praising God and was also the key word that would initiate the palm waving. So as soon as you heard Hosanna, you waved the palm. And this is why the Jews referred to their festive palm branches, their lulabs, as hosannas. By the way, the Gospel of Mark gives us an added uh, bit of detail here. Uh, He points out that there were those in conjunction with this who were spreading their cloaks 
on the road as well when Jesus starts to come. Now, so this is, this is significant, right? This is messianic. We're, we're going to praise Jesus of Nazareth, who's coming down the street, as the fulfillment of the messianic prophecies. But, you know, as you, as you think about that, right? As you take a step back and you think about it, what is sobering is the fact that the people are going to go from shouting Hosanna on Sunday to crucify him on Friday, right? This is a very topsy-turvy week, to say the least. Let's ask the question then, okay? Who did the Jews believe that Psalm 118.25, which we're looking at in this passage, was referring to? Well, as I, as I already mentioned, it's pretty clear because they explicitly identify such a one as he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. That was, by the way, considered a messianic title. In fact, he who comes, right? It doesn't sound that significant when I say it, right? He who comes, but that was code in that day for the coming Messiah who would come and then initiate the messianic age. So this is, this is serious language that they're, that they're throwing out there, yelling out to Jesus. Now, in conjunction with that fact, remember, in the opening chapter of John's Gospel, when Nathaniel first became convinced that Jesus was the Messiah after being initially skeptical of who he was, you remember, he, he, he said those famous words, he says, can anything good come out of Nazareth, right? And then Jesus tells him, a little bit about himself before he met him, when I saw you under the fig tree. And then what does, uh, what does Nathaniel say? Rabbi, you are the son of God, right? And then the, the next line, you are, you remember? The king of Israel, the Messiah, right? So when they say, he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel that's their commentary. That's not part of Psalm 118.25. That's their commentary on Psalm 118.25. The Jews of their day, not just them, the people yelling, but the Jews believed that this referred, this passage, to the Messiah. So they are praising Jesus as the messianic fulfillment of Psalm 118.25, the Messiah King who comes in the name of of the Lord. And the expectation for Jews living at that time was when the Messiah comes, guess what comes with him? The kingdom comes with him. This is made explicit, by the way, in the extra detail that Mark provides of this exact same account. He adds in Mark 11, verse 10, just jot it down, you don't have to turn there. He adds that the people were shouting this. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Now, before we continue any further, I think it's important to point out that the crowd's expectation is that the Davidic covenant is on the verge of being fulfilled. Now, what do I mean by that? Maybe you're sitting there and you go, I've heard that term, Davidic covenant. I know it's important, you know, but you're saying it's on the verge of being fulfilled in the, in the hearing of the people. What does that exactly mean? Well, I'm glad you asked that because I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to show you and just, a, I'm going to hopscotch around the Old Testament so that you could understand what the Jews of Jesus' day understood and why their, what their expectation was for Jesus here at the triumphal entry. In Second Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 and 13, uh, this is what we read in the, the giving of the Davidic covenant. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, God speaking, who shall come from your body, this is God to David, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build the house for my name, and notice what he says, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, as you can see, what stands out in God's promise to David is that he will raise up 
one of David's descendants to rule and reign over a long-lasting kingdom? No, over an eternal kingdom. Well, how are you going to reign over an eternal kingdom, right? Well, thankfully, there's not just that passage. There are other Old Testament passages that elaborate on this promise. Here's one we're going to see in just a couple months as we head into Christmas time. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 to 7. Notice what it says there. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Verse 7. Of the increase of his government, right? And of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So Isaiah comes along and predicts that a Messiah would be born Right? He would grow up and he would rule over his father uh, David's kingdom, but in a way that far surpassed his own father's kingdom. Right? Yet this son, and notice son, that's Davidic covenant language. We just saw that, right? In 2 Samuel 7. This son was no mere mortal. As the adulations concerning him indicate, not the least of which is the description, what? Mighty God. So back in 2 Samuel 7, you might have thought, well, how's he going to rule over an eternal kingdom? Is he immortal? (laughs) Actually, he is. That's how he does it. And so this kingdom, as we see here, would be one in which peace, right judgment, and justice would be the norm forever. Are those outdated concepts, by the way? Are people still concerned about those things today? I kind of think they are, right? They're only on the headlines every single day, right? Um, Even some of the Psalms reiterate God's promise to David. Pick up this theme. Psalm 89, verses 34 to 37, where you read this. I will not, this is God speaking, I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness. I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure, what? Forever. His throne as long as, what? The sun before me. Like the moon, it shall be established forever. A faithful witness in the skies. Look, the language isn't that difficult to understand, is it? But in order for David's offspring to take the throne and bring about this prophesied worldwide peace, what would he have to do in order to make that happen? Well, he's going to have to take down the rival government that is already in place, right? He's going to have to do away with the powers that be and displace the government and replace it with his government. His, or to use Old Testament language, his kingdom, right? By the way, if you're wondering, that's a prominent Old Testament theme as well, building off of the Davidic covenant language. For example, listen to this language, this, and, and it's very vivid. This description is very vivid of the worldwide judgment to come in Isaiah chapter 34, verses 1 to 8. Listen to this. Draw near, O nations, to hear, and give attention, O peoples. Let the earth hear and all that fills it, the world and all that comes from it. For the Lord is enraged against all the nations and furious against all their host. He has devoted them to destruction, has given them over for slaughter. Their slain shall be cast out, and the stench of their corpses shall rise. The mountains shall flow with their blood. This is PG-13 at least, right? This description. All the host of heaven shall rot away and the skies shall roll up like a scroll. 
Does sound familiar, this language? All their host shall fall as leaves fall from the vine, like leaves falling from the fig tree. Now listen to this. For my sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. Behold, it descends for judgment upon Edom, upon the people I have devoted to destruction. And Edom basically becomes a symbol for all the unbelieving nations, those who are opposed to God and his people. Look at, look at what it says in verse 6. The Lord has a sword. It is sated with blood. It is gorged with fat, with the blood of lambs and goats, with the fat of the kidneys of rams. For the Lord has a sacrifice in Bozrah, a great slaughter in the land of Eden. Wild oxen shall fall with them, and young steers with the mighty bulls. Their land shall drink its fill of blood, and their soil shall be gorged with fat. And this is the kicker, verse 8. For the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. This is judgment. This is, this is messianic expectation. Now, can I just interject a thought here? You know, you may be incredibly frustrated or angered uh, by the direction of our world, you know, not to mention our government as well. I know that I am. Uh, there's no fear of God, right? And that has led to sexual freedom on steroids, right? That ha- that's led to a nation and its government really taking its fist and shaking it in the face of God, saying, you have no right to tell me what gender I am. You have no right to tell me who I can marry, right? And what is possibly the greatest tragedy of all is not just the support, but the aggressive advocation for the killing of unborn children right up until the moment of birth. Now, it's not any less horrific before that. Okay, I'm not suggesting that. No matter when you kill, you kill. It's, it's all horrific, right? I'm just saying that uh, this is what we're looking at today. The advocation of murdering children, aborting children, as if that's a virtue, shows just how far sin has pervaded our culture. Christian schools... Christian bakers, photographers, you name it, right? Are being persecuted by our own government for having Christian beliefs and not going along with the the moral depravity of our nation. The world and our government is upside down. But, you know what? That's to be expected. That's exactly what the Bible says is going to happen. It was like that in the time of Jesus, and that's why there was a yearning for these messianic passages, these promises to be fulfilled. Who doesn't want peace and righteousness as the norm? Who doesn't want a perfect government? Hey, hey, look, no matter what your political preference is, I've got news for you. There is not going to be a perfect government on this earth until Christ returns. Is, is that a revelation for anyone here? There is not going to be a perfect government here until Christ returns. Now, some will be better than others, but there will be imperfections in the best of them. And we shouldn't try to make excuses for when it isn't, when our party, our political party is in power and, and, and explain it away when it's not, when there are imperfections. We have to admit, there's imperfections no matter who's in charge, okay? That this is what it's gonna be like. We're not living in a theocracy where Jesus is sitting on the throne yet, okay? Um, But that's why we yearn. That's why we pray for God's kingdom to come, right? You know, isn't that part of the Lord's Prayer? When Jesus taught his disciples to pray, Thy kingdom come. You kind of get the gist of that? Where all this is, why that's so prominent in in the Lord's Prayer? So the people 
that are present at the triumphal entry anticipate that the kingdom has arrived and that Jesus is about to set it into motion. So just think about the fever pitch of excitement that many of these Israelites are feeling as they are heralding, waving their palm leaves, that Jesus is the Messiah. He's here. This is it. This is the moment we've all been waiting for. He's going to pull back the curtain and show everyone who he is, and then when he does, it's on. All these Old Testament expectations are going to be fulfilled, right? Victory might not have come yet, but it's right at the door. It's right at the door. So the question then is, how is Jesus going to make his appearance, right? How's Jesus going to make his appearance? Well, maybe he'll come riding on a huge war horse, right? 12 feet high in the air, right? The victory saddle, armor on, right? An army behind him, right? Here I am. I'm ready. Let's go. Um, sword here, right? Blood dripping off of it, you know? Well, if that's, what you, if that's what the people thought, and many of them did, that's what they were waiting for, but that expectation was absolutely wrong. It was very wrong, at least for this moment. We'll come back to that in just a second. Let's take a look at verses uh, 14 to 15 and, and messianic fulfillment. And Jesus found a young donkey, and he sat on it. Just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. So put yourself there now, right? You're there, you're watching this thing, this scene. And you're, you know, the people are probably caught off guard by what they saw. Now, I don't think it was unreasonable for them to expect to see Jesus riding into town confidently, right? Comes into Jerusalem on a war horse, like I had described, uh, ready to take his rightful place uh, as king over Israel. And remember, the Romans are in power, so he's gonna, you know, take down the rival rule of the Romans, and then immediately set up the Messianic kingdom to fulfill these promises that we just looked at from the Old Testament. That's a reasonable expectation, don't you think, from what we read? But Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. He doesn't come with vengeance, triumphantly riding on a war horse. He instead comes lowly, humble, riding on a donkey. Huh? Or as Ann Pan says, huh? I mean, well, what is going on here? What am I witnessing? How can the Messiah come riding into town in such a humble manner, an unexpected manner? How does this really make any sense? It's the total opposite of what we were expecting when we were waving our palm fronds when he's coming into town. Well, before we explain what's going on with this, uh, let me mention this this, this part first. Although it may sound like, from, you know, as I read the, the passage there, that Jesus kind of just stumbled upon this donkey. Like, you know, Jesus was kind of cruising in town. Oh, look, a donkey. Oh, hey, you know, let's pull him over here or, so, or something like that. That's not what happened uh, at all. Um, the synoptic gospels, John doesn't tell us, but the other three do. The synoptic gospels make it clear that Jesus actually had his disciples arrange it so that he could ride this donkey in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. So you have to understand, this isn't just a coincidence or just, you know, one of those things that happened. Jesus is orchestrating this for a reason, okay? In fact, everything that is happening from, you know, in, in Jesus' life, but particularly, we're, we're talking specifically of this Passion Week, everything has been carefully prepared by Jesus ahead of time. So what's going on here? Well, Zechariah 9.9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. You know, in the first century, two ideas would have come immediately to mind 
when thinking of someone riding on a donkey. And that would have been humility and peace. Those two ideas would have been associated with riding a donkey. And that's exactly what this prophecy is communicating. It refers to the future messianic king who comes humbly in peace and you'd be able to identify him because he'd be riding a donkey instead of a horse because that would, you know, a horse would be more typical. You wouldn't even think, you wouldn't think twice about it. Riding a donkey, you would, right? This was prophesied by Zechariah 500 years previously when there weren't any kings in Jerusalem at the time. That's the post-Babylonian captivity. People, uh, the Jews are returning back to uh, Jerusalem because of the decree of the Persians. And so, although Jesus was fulfilling Old Testament prophecy, he was uh, presenting himself to Jerusalem as their Messiah. He was doing so in a way that was qu- quite different from the crowd's expectations. And you know, this fact was probably really lost on the crowd, this whole scene of the donkey. Most of the people there wouldn't have got it. They were so fixated on the judgment and the reigning aspects of Messianic Old Testament prophecy, they didn't even realize that Jesus was fulfilling other Messianic prophecies instead. Now, to be fair, okay, to be fair, you could see how difficult If you were living at that time, it would have been to fit together these two very different pictures of the Messiah. One as the conquering war hero and the other as the humble, peaceable king. See, it's easy now. We look back on it and we go, oh, well, yeah, it's it's easy to see how all that makes sense. But it's very difficult to see how all of this would have fit in if you were living looking forward before fulfillment took place. But, but, You know who this wasn't lost on? You know who this wasn't lost on? The Pharisees. Luke records in his gospel a detail that John doesn't mention here because it's not important for his purposes. In Luke chapter 19, I guess I don't have it on there. In Luke 19, 38 to 39, it records the people saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven in glory in the highest, and 39 says, and some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. They get it. They understand what's going on here. And this tells us that the Pharisees recognized that the the people were proclaiming that Jesus was the Messiah. They, They got that. Everybody gets that. But they were also getting the fact that Jesus was presenting himself to the people as their Messiah by riding on the donkey. So what might have been lost on most of the people going, what's going on with the donkey thing? The Pharisees, it wasn't lost on them. Rebuke your disciples. This is wrong what's going on here. This is blasphemous, right? I'm sure all of you remember Jesus' response to the Pharisees uh, in Luke 19.40. I'm sure you remember that. He answered them, I tell you, if these were silent, what? The very stones would cry out, right? This is true, what's going on here. So let's not miss the main point. The people are proclaiming Jesus as the Messiah. And whether they know it or not, the Pharisees did, Jesus is accepting their acclamation and affirming it. He is the Messiah. But you know what? Those who are familiar with the context of Zechariah 9.9 should have immediately recognized that there's more to the story than verse 9. You know why? You just have to read one more verse. The very next verse paints a very different story. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bull shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. It's more messianic expectation. Now, if you were reading Zechariah 9, 9 to 10 for your devotions, let me ask you a question. Wouldn't you think all of this, verses 9 to 10, would happen all at the same time, one right after the other? The Messiah rides into town, 
in a humble, lowly manner, but then he starts triumphing over Israel's enemies. He subsequently brings worldwide peace, and then, as he sets up his kingdom, universal peace reigns in the kingdom. Wouldn't you, as you're reading this, wouldn't you think that's how it's going to happen? Well, you know, that's exactly how the Jews understood these kinds of passages as well. When the Messiah comes, he will bring judgment upon Israel's enemies, which was Rome at this time, and then he would immediately set up his kingdom. In fact, the second half of verse 10 in Zechariah 9.10, the second half is a quotation from, guess what? A messianic psalm, Psalm 72, verse 8, which promises a worldwide reign of the Davidic Messiah. So it sounds like all of this is going to happen at the same time, sequentially one right after the other. But you know what? Something they learned, something we learn as well, is that much of biblical prophecy doesn't happen that way. Fulfillment isn't always all or nothing, but often there is a progressive fulfillment where some things are fulfilled now and the rest is fulfilled at a later time. Okay, do you understand? Some things will be fulfilled now and others will be fulfilled later. This is what we call an already but not yet fulfillment. Okay, some things are already being fulfilled but other things wait till later to be fulfilled. So the Apostle John lets us know that Zechariah 9.9 is being fulfilled in the triumphal entry. But not verse 10. The rest of it is reserved for later. For when's later? When Christ returns the second time. It is then, at his second coming, that he will put down every rival rule and then set up a worldwide kingdom that is headquartered in Jerusalem. See, even the, the Isaiah 9 passage, right, reads that way. Now unto us a child is born Unto us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, right? It sounds like it's all going to happen all in the same breath, right? Well, it's read in the same breath, but all of that, some of it is fulfilled now. Was the son born? Was he given? Yes, right? Uh, but is the government now on his shoulders? Not like this. If it is, you know, the government's a mess today. So we have to understand that these things take place progressively already but not yet but for now but for now we're in we're in a, we're not in verse 10 we're in verse 9 Zechariah 9 9 but for now as J.C. Ryle points out no Roman soldier in the garrison of Jerusalem who standing at his post or sitting in his barrack window saw our Lord riding on donkey could report to his centurion that he looked like one who came to wrest the kingdom of Judea out of the hand of the Romans drive out Pontius Pilate and his legions from the Tower of Antonia and achieve independence for the Jews with the sword. He doesn't come like that. He doesn't look like that. He's not threatening as he rides into town. Verse 16, his disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. Well, I've already mentioned uh, the fact that most likely very few would have immediately recognized the fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9 as the event was taking place. Well, the Apostle John makes it crystal clear that none of the disciples picked up on it either. They're watching it. They didn't, they didn't get it either. They were so fixated on the prophecies that dealt with the Messiah's conquering of Israel's enemies and his subsequent reign in his kingdom that they didn't realize that he was actually fulfilling another important Old Testament prophecy that needed to happen first. And it wasn't until after Jesus died, he was resurrected and went back to heaven, that's what he means by he was glorified, that they realized the prophetic significance of this particular event, right? In hindsight, it all kind of clicked together as the Holy Spirit ministered it to their heart. Verses 17 to 18, Messianic testimony. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him 
was that he'd heard, uh, they had heard he had done this sign. You know, you might be a little confused when you first read these verses until you realize that John is describing two separate crowds uh, that are present there at the triumphal entry. The, the first crowd in verse 17 consists of those who were present when Jesus raised Lazarus from the grave. Now, it's possible that some of these same people were present at that special dinner that was given in Jesus' honor at the beginning of the chapter. Uh, we don't know, but the point is uh, that John wants to make is that these people are still buzzing about what they had seen with their own eyes. They saw Jesus resurrect a man who was dead for four days and had already been buried in a tomb. You know, that was an event that changed their lives forever. And the emphasis in the Greek text here is that they couldn't stop telling anyone who would listen about Jesus. And you know what? That becomes an example for us, doesn't it? I mean, we didn't see Lazarus raised from the dead, but we know that Jesus died and rose from the dead. The significance of Lazarus was an amazing event, but what about the significance of Jesus raising from the dead? Does it cause you to have this same attitude as these people in the crowd who are ready to tell everyone who will listen about Jesus. Because again, the emphasis in the text is they can't stop talking about Jesus to anyone who is present, who is there. That's really something for us as an example to, to learn from here. There's a second crowd that's mentioned in verse 18, and this group is the same one we mentioned uh, back in verse 12, who came from Jerusalem because they had heard all the buzz about Jesus and Lazarus. So the first crowd consisted of direct eyewitnesses who was there to see Lazarus get raised from the dead, whereas this group had heard the testimony and they wanted to see Jesus and Lazarus for themselves. Verse 19, so the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. You know, it's important to remember that the Sanhedrin had earlier made the decision that Jesus was more trouble than he was worth, and thus he needed to be executed. We read that in chapter 11, 49 to 53, when we covered the Lazarus issue. But how would they be able to carry out their plans now when he's so immensely popular? How are we going to do it now? See, at this point in time, right, if they even hinted at violence towards Jesus the messianic fervor, they're proclaiming him the Messiah, and someone stood up and said, let's kill him, right? What would, what would that person have done? He put his own life in jeopardy, right? You can't do it, and they realize that. There's, we're gonna create a riot if we were to, to try to uh, carry out our plans now. So when they, when they see this messianic fervor surrounding you know, him reach this epic peak, but again, it's gonna die down very soon, isn't it? Uh, over the next couple of days, everyone in the crowd shouting out praises to him, they realize that their plan is being thwarted, and so they're angry, they're frustrated, and they start to blame each other. They start to, they, they start to admit to each other, man, we're getting nowhere fast. Our plan is, is, is going up in smoke. Jesus' popularity is getting out of control, and what are we gonna do here? You know, ironically, these Pharisees speak better than they know. (laughs) It's kind of funny when you think about it. When they admit that the world has gone after him, you know, they don't mean that literally, right? They they mean that, you know, hyperbolically that their whole, what was their whole world? Their whole world was Jerusalem. The whole world is going after him, right? They, They just mean it, you know, a figure of speech, right? But you know, in reality, this crowd is actually foreshadowing every person, every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every language who will ultimately place their faith in Christ and become part of his kingdom. So you know what the Pharisees meant more locally is actually true in a more literal sense than they would have ever imagined going forward. So yes, it is true 
that literally the whole world has gone after Jesus from every tribe, tongue, nation, language on the earth. There are followers of Jesus Christ from every walk of life, from every part of the world. Why is that? Is it because people from all over the world woke up one day and just figured it out from themselves? Hey, you know what? I just had a thought today. Jesus is the Savior of the world. You think that's how it happened? No. The answer is that God, in his grace, has chosen a people for himself before he ever created this world, and then he secured their salvation through the life, the death, and the resurrection of his perfect son. Now, why did he do that? Did he have to do that? No. But, you know, out of his love, he did. And because of the sin that we inherited from our forefather, Adam, not to mention, you know, our own sin that we've added unto Adam's sin a millionfold, a billionfold, a trillionfold. So because of our sin, we are in a state where we can never please a perfectly holy God, and therefore we are accountable for each and every one of our sins. And as we all know, the wages of sin is what? Death. You know, if, if you're not a believer, you've never heard this before, I, I want to make it plain to you. This is not just physical death that the Bible speaks of. This is eternal death in hell. Okay? Because of who God is and the offense is so great against a perfectly holy God. So God sent his son Jesus who had his same nature to take on human flesh and live the perfect God-pleasing life that you and I were unable to do. He took that perfect life and he laid it down on the cross whereby he redirected his father's wrath for mankind's sin onto himself and thus suffering in our place as our sin substitute, securing our forgiveness You know, for all those who believe this and place their faith in Jesus, he will forgive you for all of your sins and he will break the enslaving power of sin over your life. Notice I didn't say he makes sin vanish, but he does break the power of that the enslavement uh, of your sin has. But you know what? You can't come to Jesus on your, on your own. You can't come in your own power. God has to call you and open up your spiritual eyes so that you can see and believe. Well, because of God's grace, and only because of God's grace, he continues to call sinners to repentance, and he transforms one life after another. And as a result, the whole world has gone after him. You know, Jesus' first coming was all about peace and humility, and he fulfilled the terms of Zechariah 9.9. But his second coming will be about judgment on the nations, fulfilling the terms of Zechariah 9.10. Today is the day of salvation. The invitation is there for you to repent and come to him. But, you know, the window is closing. But when we're going to get to Zechariah 9.10 one day and that day could be today and that's when all our frustrations when this present government will be relieved as our King Jesus will set up his government and peace and righteousness will be the rule not the exception and the whole world will then be in subjection to him but you know what that day is not here yet is it God sent his son Jesus the first time to deal with the sin problem and to freely offer the gift of salvation. But as I said, this offer won't be on the table forever. So my final words to you this morning as we close is repent now while you still have the chance and give God the glory for it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for our Lord Jesus Christ 
And as we peel back the, the curtain to see what's going on here at the triumphal entry, we praise Jesus for who he was, the prophesied one to come. God come in the flesh to live the perfect life, to, to be submissive to his Father's will so that this plan of redemption could be accomplished and that we, who would be called, not because of anything we did, but by your grace, could then have our sins forgiven and become your followers. We praise your name, Father, for your wonderful plan and all that you've executed. We give you praise and thanks this morning and pray for every person who doesn't know Jesus that they would come before you, humble themselves, repent of all that they trust in, and and become a follower of Jesus today. Convict their hearts. Don't give them any rest until they deal with this issue. We pray these things, Lord, in Jesus' name.